Tonight we begin a study, really a survey study, of the epistle of Jude, one of the briefest books in the New Testament. In fact, it's only 25 verses long. It is the book just before the book of Revelation. But not only is it brief, sadly, it is one of the most neglected and ignored books in the Bible. It's ignored by Christians in their study of the Word of God. And its neglect has had a noticeably negative impact upon the church of Jesus Christ. See, Jude wrote his letter for the specific purpose of protecting genuine Christians. If we neglect this book, we are not as protected as we should be. He wrote to protect true Christians from false Christians who had infiltrated the various churches that Jude was addressing. These false Christians, really false teachers, claimed to know Jesus Christ, but they didn't know Christ. And they came into the church. They were doing great damage by denying and distorting some very essential doctrines of the faith. Now, notice what Jude says in verse 3. We'll jump right into it. Jude says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Next week we'll look more in depth at this verse. But for right now, understand that in this verse, Jude tells us exactly why he wrote this letter. Why he wrote this letter. And in doing so, he gives us really the overall purpose of the letter, the overall theme, the overall message of the letter. He tells us that while he was preparing, perhaps he'd even begun to write down something. He was going to write these folks a letter, apparently a general letter on the subject of salvation. Notice how he puts it. I wanted to write to you about our common salvation Maybe it was a book that was similar to Romans. We're not sure, but he was, Jude had it in his mind to write a letter to various Christians, probably several churches, on the subject of salvation. But then he changed his mind, or better yet, we could say God changed his mind. Instead, he now felt compelled to write a different kind of a letter. A letter in which he urged his readers, notice this, Jude says, to contend for the faith, which was once and for all handed down to the saints. In other words, the message of the letter that he wrote, which is what we call the letter of Jude, was a call to fight. It's a call to do battle for the truth of the Christian faith, which was under siege. That's what this letter is about. It's about contending for the faith. It's about standing true to the word of God and fighting For the truth. Now, why was this so important to Jude that he decided to to write a letter about this rather than a letter about salvation? I mean, what could be more important than salvation? Well, nothing really, except that Jude tells us that something came to his attention. How? We don't know. But something came to his attention that was very critical. Verse four, he explains. And this is his explanation why he changed his mind. We would say why God changed his mind concerning The nature of his letter, he says for verse four, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, meaning secretively, 
They've crept in unnoticed those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I said that next week we'll look more in depth at what verse and verse 4 means. But for right now, understand this, that Judah is saying that certain men crept into various churches unnoticed, unnoticed by true believers. How? We're, we're not exactly told. But they crept in unnoticed by the genuine Christians there. These men, though, who crept into the various churches were not Christians. They were spiritual counterfeits and, and really quite ungodly in their behavior. And one way, Jude says, that they evidenced their ungodliness was that they interpreted God's grace as a license to do whatever they wanted to do. The thought behind the word licentiousness is unbridled living. In other words, unrestrained behavior, do whatever one desires to do with no inhibitions. That's the thought here. That's how these men lived. So it would appear that these men who had come into the churches that Jude was familiar with, believed that God's grace permitted them to sin as much as they wanted because they were forgiven. Grace abounds. You can do whatever you want. God continues to forgive. But in living this way, Jude tells us, they denied, notice what he says in verse 4, they deny our only master, the sovereign one, and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Jude is saying that that in living the way they wanted to live, they denied the lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ over their lives. That is to say that because they did what they wanted to do rather than what Christ's word told them to do, they were in charge of their lives. So they denied the Lord. Now, do you see why the book of Jude is such a critical, important book to know and understand? Because what's taking place today in many churches, is really the same kind of situation that Jude and his readers faced in the first century. I want you to listen to the insightful words of D. Edmund Hebert, who wrote about, he wrote a commentary on Jude that I have, and he wrote about the importance and the relevance of this letter for the church today. Right at the very beginning of his commentary, here's what he has to say. I quote, So the brief epistle of Jude is without parallel in the New Testament for its vehement denunciation of libertines and apostates. Apostates are those who have departed from the faith. They said they once believed, but they really didn't believe, and they've departed from what they said they believed. He writes, while displaying affectionate concern for true believers, it burns with fiery indignation and vivid pronouncements of judgment upon religious sensualists. It heaps denunciation upon errorists who pollute the purity of the faith and insist that the revelation, revelations of God in Christ cannot be compromised. In our day, when an increasing number regard truth as relative and are growing more willing to consider all religious systems as having some validity, many suppose that this epistle has lost its relevance for today. But as long as it is true that belief influences and motivates conduct, and as long as God's holiness continues to stand in opposition to all sin and evil, so long will this epistle retain its relevance by declaring God's unchanging message to man. That is a great statement by Hebert. 
He's basically saying that we live in a day and age in which truth is just discarded. So we can't discard the the letter of Jude. It is relevant today, perhaps even more so than in Jude's own day, because uh, heresy just continues to pile up and pile up. And there's more today than there's ever been. Now, tonight, I want to introduce this letter to you by looking at the first two verses of Jude, which along with with verses three and four, which, as I said, we'll look at Lord willing next week, not only set the tone of the letter, but they actually give us a number of key truths about this epistle. And this will, I, I think, give us a feel for the book as well as give us truths to build on for further studies. Now, in looking at the first two verses of Jude, we're given two key truths about the letter. Number one, we're given the information about the writer of the letter. That's important for us to know something about him. And number two, we're given information about the readers of this letter. Then next week, we will see a a third key truth, and that is the reason for the letter. And we'll go more in depth into verses three and four. As I said, these are actually foundational truths upon which you can can build in gaining a greater understanding of this book. So to begin with tonight, We want to see, number one, who's the writer of this letter? Now, of course, we know that the writer of the book is Jude. But who is who is Jude? We know his name is Jude because he tells us in the opening statement of the letter that he is. Notice he says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. However, that fact alone that his name is Jude really doesn't tell us who he is. Because the name Jude was a relatively common Jewish name in the first century. In the Greek language, the name Jude, and of course the New Testament is written in Greek, the name Jude is actually Judas. If you were to look in your Greek New Testament, if you have a Greek New Testament, it starts off by saying Judas, not Jude. And the name Judas is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Judah named after one of the tribes of Israel, Judah. There's also a famous character of the Maccabean era era between the Old and and New Testament uh, named Judah, Judah the Maccabean. However, since the name Judas is now, when you hear the name Judas, what do you think? Of course, you think of the betrayer of Judas Iscariot. And so since the name Judas now is associated with Judas Iscariot, translators from the Greek New Testament into English tend to use the name Jude when they translate it into English instead of Judas. So that's why it's translated Jude. So who was this Jude who wrote the epistle that is commonly named after him? Well, it's interesting to note that the name Jude is found 43 times in the New Testament, and there are several men who are called Jude. So we have to think this thing through a little bit if we're to figure out who this man is, and we really can figure it out. It's, it's not that hard, but I'll show you the process. In fact, one of the Lord's apostles was named Judas, and more than Judas Iscariot. In fact, he is, he is also known as Thaddeus. But once in a while, you'll read he is called uh, Judas, not Iscariot, as if to distinguish him, because who wants to be identified with Judas Iscariot? So you even have an apostle of our Lord named Jude. But the Jude who wrote this letter was not an apostle. Now, how do we know that? 
Well, two indications. Number one, he never calls himself an apostle. If he was an apostle, he'd call himself an apostle. Paul always said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That carries with it authority. That says, I'm an official representative. I am a unique apostle. This man was inspired, but he was not an apostle. Never identifies himself as an apostle. As I said, if he was, he would have for sure said that. But there's something more. Notice verse 17. And in Jude, we never say chapter 1, verse 7. It's always the verse because there's only one chapter. Verse 17. He says, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right here, he distinguishes himself as someone who is not an apostle. He speaks of the apostles and speaks of them as someone or a group of men distinct from himself. He doesn't say as uh, what we wrote to you as apostles. He calls the others apostles as if to say, I'm not one of them. You should know and listen to what they said to you. So he's not an apostle. However, we really don't need to speculate and guess about which Jude is our writer because he really makes it relatively easy for us to figure out. Since he goes on to say more about himself, he identifies himself not only, and we'll talk about this in a moment, as a bond slave or uh, really a slave of Jesus Christ, but he also calls himself the brother of, of James. He says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, you may think, but wait a minute. There, James, there were lots of guys named James in that, in that era. And, um, and there probably were many Judes, if that was a popular name, who had brothers named James. That's, that's true. But the fact that Jude, this Jude, makes a point to mention his brother, James, indicates that this James was well known. This James was a noted individual in the early church, someone that all the readers would say, oh, this, yeah, we know James. All the readers of this epistle would be familiar with. Otherwise, there's no reason for Jude to mention that his brother is James, unless James is well known to everyone who would read this letter. And the only James who was really well known and alive at the time known to the church, was James, the half-brother of Jesus, which means that this Jude was also a half-brother of Jesus. Now, let me show you what I mean. We know from the New Testament that that Jesus had four half-brothers. That is to say that there were brothers who were the, uh, the sons of Mary and Joseph. We know that two of them were named Jude or Judas and James. Let's look at Matthew chapter 13. You certainly want to keep your place in Jude. And we're going to be looking at a number of verses tonight. But Matthew chapter 13. Once again, we don't have to guess at this. Matthew 13 verse 55. We read this. This is the response of the people in Nazareth when Jesus comes back and goes into the synagogue there. They said, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, notice, notice this, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Joseph and Simon, but we do know a little bit about James, especially about James and then Judas. The fact that his name comes last probably indicates that he was the youngest of, uh, of the, the brothers. Now, so what do we know about Jude? No, he was a half-brother of Jesus, but actually we know very little about him. 
very little about him. We do know that in, in John chapter 7, verse 5, we're told that he, along with his brothers, did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah during Christ's three-year ministry on earth. It said they were not believing in him. They did not believe in him. However, we do know that at some point, probably after the resurrection, but before the ascension, that Jude became a believer. Why do we, and why and how do we know that? Because according to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, he was there. He was there in the upper room with the other believers. There were only about 120 of them. Other believers on the day of Pentecost when the church came into existence. He was there. We also know something else about him. He was involved in ministry. He was an itinerant preacher. Where do we know that from? 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Just sort of tucked away, easy to overlook in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now let me explain. Paul is talking about his, his liberty in Christ, but the fact that he could refrain from the use of his liberty. He's talking about the right he had to be paid for his ministry, but he chose not to be paid for ministry so that no one at that time would, would get the wrong ideas about him trying to uh, take advantage of God's people. And he's explaining this in chapter 9. And he says in verse 5, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? He says, well, when we're traveling, don't we have the right to take along a wife, a believer who is taken care of and paid for that the church takes care of her expenses, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Cephas is, is Peter. He said, don't we have a right to do this? Others do this. They're taken care of. Their expenses are paid for. And he mentions the brothers of our Lord, which would include Jude. So we know that this man Jude was a brother, half-brother of Christ. He also became a believer. And we also know that he was involved in some type of ministry by which he traveled around. He traveled. He had an itinerant ministry. Now, while we don't know much more about Jude beyond these these basic statements, we do know quite a bit about James. At least I should say what we know about James is very significant. Because as I mentioned, he became well-known in the early church. Who is this James? Now, I mentioned this morning uh, Peter and James and John who went up on uh, the, the high mount, probably Mount Hermon, um, uh, at the Transfiguration. This is not that James. That James was killed in the early days of the church. He's martyred. He's not even part of the picture. Not, not at this point. So it's not that James. What James is it? This is the James who became a well-known leader in the Jerusalem church, and his place is quite prominent in the New Testament. He is mentioned by Paul in Galatians chapter 1. Specifically, Paul calls him the Lord's brother. He said, I met with him. I met with James, the brother of of the Lord. And then in chapter 2 of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 9, he is referred to, along with Peter and John, as pillars in the church, meaning that he was a respected, noted, admired leader in the church at Jerusalem. He was a pillar. People looked to him for leadership. We also see 
this James, in Acts chapter 15, functioning as the chairman of the council that met in Jerusalem to discuss the most important doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith. You'll recall that there were some people who said, no, Gentiles can't be, can't be just saved by believing in Jesus. They have to be circumcised. They have to keep the law of Moses. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, Barnabas and others spoke strongly and said, no, we are, they are saved the same way we are by the grace of God through faith alone in Christ. And it was James who chaired that meeting. He is the spokesman. He's the one who guided it along. He is the, the one they recognized as the leader amongst leaders. He's also the author of the inspired epistle that's named after him, that little book known as James. That's this James, and that's the one who wrote it. In fact, James' prominence in the early church is probably the reason that Jude identifies him as his brother, because it would immediately tell all of the readers not only who he was, but it would also give him some credibility, since James was so well-known and James was so admired. Now, what's so interesting about that concept, writing to gain some credibility, is this man is the half-brother of Jesus. Why, if you need some credibility, why not just mention Jesus is my half-brother? Hey, what better credibility do do you need than that? Oh, yeah, I'm part of the family. Yes, Mary is my mother. Joseph is my father. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. If he wants credibility, he says, yeah, James is my brother. I'm just a bondservant. I'm just a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, why would he do that? I think the best answer is because this would have come across as a form of boasting. And it would have conveyed uh, an erroneous erroneous thing to the early church that there were certain privileges and and special authorities given to those who were, were physically related to Jesus. I mean, there were others too. Yeah, James. Yeah, the, the Lord had half sisters as well. You have some other brothers. And nobody wants to come across as because I am physically related in the flesh to Jesus, I've got special privileges. Treat me better. I have more authority than somebody else. That's absolutely erroneous. That's absolutely wrong. And, and Jude didn't use that. And rightfully so. And so Jude very humbly refers to himself simply says, I'm a I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, just like every other believer. I'm a slave, just another believer, although an inspired writer of Scripture. And by the way, the the church has down through the ages accepted this book in the canon of Scripture. And there is really not any question whether the early church and the early church leaders embraced this book as inspired by God. So the writer of this letter is called Jude. He was obviously a Jewish man, being the half-brother of Jesus, whose mother we know was Mary, his father was Joseph, Jesus was his half-brother, James was his full brother. We know he was an itinerant preacher, and so he had a ministry to various people in the early church. But the question now is this, who were the original recipients of this letter to whom did he did he minister who were the people he wrote this letter to so we move from the writer of jude which now we know 
When you read Jude, you know a little bit about him. But who are the readers of the letter called Jude? Well, usually at the start of a New Testament letter, the writer states the location of the people he's writing to. That's pretty much the norm. So you read, for example, in the New Testament to the uh, church of the Thessalonians, meaning that Paul was writing to the Christians who were part of the church at the city known as Thessalonica. You read, for example, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. It's very clear. This is the believers who were living in the village or town of Colossae. To all those uh, who are beloved of God in Rome. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. So that's the norm. You say who you are, what your authority is, and to whom you're writing. But there is no statement like that in Jude. There is no statement. He doesn't identify his original readers, nor does he tell us their location. Frankly, folks, we don't know who these people were. We don't know where they were located. He simply states in verse 1 that his readers are believers. Notice the rest of verse 1. It says, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That, that, those three designations are only true of Christians. So his, his readers are believers, but we don't know where they were located. However, it would appear, it would strongly appear from the contents of Jude that his original readers were Jewish Christians as opposed to Gentile Christians. Now, why do I say that? Not every commentator holds to that, but most do, and I think they're right. And the reason is because there are so many references in this letter to Old Testament truths and there are no explanations given and if you logically think that through if if this letter was written to gentile believers you'd have to explain some old testament truths they wouldn't be that familiar with them but you wouldn't have to explain it to jewish people because they grew up understanding this let me let me give you some examples for example in verse 5 He speaks about the exodus from Egypt. He says, now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who who did not believe. He's, He's talking about there is judgment coming for these false teachers. And he goes back into Jewish history and says, now remember that God judged the children of Israel who didn't believe but there there's no explanation there he assumes they know exactly what he's talking about and they do because they're they're jewish he speaks in verse 7 of sodom and gomorrah he says just as sodom and gomorrah and the cities around them since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishments of eternal fire he talks about the the wicked homosexuality of the people of sodom and gomorrah then notice in verse 11 He says, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain and for pay. They have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These people were familiar. These were all Old Testament uh, characters. And um, there's no explanation given. Why? Because they already knew about these people. To Gentiles, you'd have to explain about Korah. You'd have to explain about Balaam. But. They didn't need an explanation because they knew this. And also notice this, and this is really the clincher for me. These people were not only familiar with the Old Testament, they were familiar with something only Jewish people of that day would be familiar with, and that's Jewish literature outside of the Bible, not inspired, not inspired. Notice verse 9. 
He says, but Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, that is not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. We know nothing apart from Jude, verse 9, that Michael, the archangel, disputed with the devil about the body of Moses. However, that was written in Jewish literature actually called the Assumption of Moses. Was it true? This part was true. Otherwise, Jude would not have quoted it. It is true, whether anything else in, the, in that uh, piece of literature is true, we, we don't know. But the only people who'd be, who'd be familiar with the Assumption of Moses would be Jewish people. Gentile people wouldn't, wouldn't care about that. Then you have, and notice in verse 14, something else, another piece of literature that only Jewish people would be familiar with. He said it was also about these men that Enoch... In the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. He speaks about it to execute judgment and so forth. That quote is part, is taken from another piece of Jewish literature called the Book of Enoch. Once again, not inspired, except this part is true. But Jude quotes from it, and only Jewish people would know about that. As I said, Gentiles wouldn't care about these writings, wouldn't be familiar with them. So I think we can be reasonably certain that the original readers were Jewish Christians, Jewish believers. And probably Jude is writing to several churches as opposed to one church, as I said, where these churches were located. I don't know. Nobody really knows. Uh, maybe they were in the area of, of Israel since Jude would have been a Jewish man who, and James would have been known to the Jewish believers, very well known to them. But we don't know for sure. But Jude was familiar with these Christians, familiar with these churches, and he knew they were threatened by false brethren who had secretly infiltrated into their midst. Now, while we may not know exactly who these Christians were or where they were located, in verse 1, and this is most important, Jude tells us some very precious truths about them, which apply to all of us as believers. And I'm, I'm amazed that commentators often just very quickly uh, skip over this or deal with it in such a brief way, they, they, I think they missed the point. Notice that there are three things that Jude says about these believers. He says, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. By the way, one of the unique characteristics of this letter is Jude often writes in, in threes, triads, we call it. And here you have a triad. Verse 2, you see the same thing. May mercy and peace and love, that's three things, a triad, be multiplied to you. Here he mentions uh, three things about these believers. They are called, number one, they are beloved in God the Father, and number three, they are kept for Jesus Christ. Now, these are precious truths, and I want to spend the remainder of our time just looking at them. They don't simply apply to Jude's readers. They apply to all of us, and these are very important. Now, why do you suppose that Jude highlights these three spiritual realities about these believers. Nobody else opens a New Testament letter exactly like Jude. There's a reason. Notice all of these descriptions address one central issue that concerns our spiritual security in Jesus Christ. The fact that we can't lose our salvation. All of them. We're called. We're, we're beloved in God the Father. We are kept for Jesus Christ. They're, they're all addressing the issue of you, you're kept, you're called, you're, you're loved by God, 
You are kept by Jesus Christ. We can't lose our salvation. Why is this important to Jude's readers? Because this was an incredibly important truth for them to grasp and a critical truth for us to understand why. Jude remembers writing to believers who were being just inundated, bombarded with false teaching and false teachers. And there were many in those churches who were defecting from the truth that they once claimed to believe. As I said, that's what apostasy is. It's a departure from the truth. What must have been going through the minds of the true believers as they saw people who, who said they believed in Christ, but now they were changing their view and, and defecting, they probably were very concerned about their own defection. Maybe I'm going to defect. Maybe I'm next. How do I know I'm not going to abandon the truth? How do I know some suave and, and very charismatic teacher isn't going to come along and say some things that will be so persuasive to me that I'll just walk away from Christ? How do I know that I'm going to remain in this salvation? Jude addresses that. These three designations tell us if you're a true believer, you'll never defect from the faith. There may be some bumps in the road. You may have some doubts here and there, but you'll never ultimately walk away from Jesus Christ, join a cult, abandon the faith, say, well, yeah, I once believed that, but I don't anymore. And why? Because he tells us we've been called by God to salvation. We are beloved by God the Father and we're kept for Jesus Christ. This is precisely, folks, why Jude closes this letter with the statement that believers will someday stand in the presence of Christ in heaven. I'm telling you, this was in their minds. Otherwise, Jude wouldn't mention this. Notice how he closes the letter in verses 24 and 25. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, stumbling to the point where you'll completely crash and fall away. And he's able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. And then he says to, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. This is the one who will keep you from falling away. That's on their minds. So he opens the letter addressing that. He closes the letter addressing that now what i what i want us to do is look more closely at these descriptions and um, and just let our hearts just soak these truths in to know that you will always if you're a true believer continue to believe and follow jesus christ number one he tells us we are called we are called that's a reference to the doctrine of god's sovereign electing grace there is a general call when we speak of the call of God, there is a general call of the gospel that goes out to everyone, goes out to believers, goes out to, to unbelievers. That is what, what Jesus was talking about in, in Matthew chapter 11, for example, when he said, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, thirsty, I'll give you rest, I'll give you drink. That is just a general call of salvation to, to all people. When you and I witness to people, that's the general call that's going out. But the call that Jude is referring to is what theologians call an irresistible call. That, that, those terms are not in the Bible. The truth is, but it's an irresistible call because it, it won't be resisted. It won't be resisted. Why won't it be resisted? Because God in eternity chose us to be saved and then at a specific point in our lives, he called us to himself in such a way that we could not and would not resist it. He broke in upon our lives and regenerated us by his sovereign grace. He made the first move and he called us then to come to him for salvation. We heard this call upon our lives and we came. Salvation is of the Lord 
starts as he calls us to himself. Starts with him electing us, but then he calls us to himself. I'd like you to look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2. I have a number of, of references here, but uh, I don't want to belabor all these points because I'm keeping my eye on the, the clock. I have one up here. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 13 and 14. Notice he says this. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God, notice this, has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So they are chosen by God. But notice verse 14. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So those who are chosen, Paul says, he calls through the gospel. It's an irresistible call. And that's what he's talking about here. So we are called by God to salvation, meaning this, you didn't invite yourself. You didn't say, I think I'll decide for Christ. I think I'll make that That choice, it may have appeared that way to you, but you didn't invite yourself. He not only invited you and called you, he mysteriously, sovereignly brought you into his family by his calling. And therefore, since you didn't invite yourself, you you can't uninvite yourself. You can't walk away. You can't just leave and, and turn away from Christ. He called you and brought you to himself. You are secure. Secondly, Jude describes believers as beloved In God the Father. Now, this is very interesting because the way this is constructed in the Greek text means that God loved us in the past and he continues to love us in the present. What what a precious truth. He loves you now. The Father loves us. And while there is the love that God has in his heart for all of his creatures, whether they're saved or not, what Jude is talking about is the love of a father for his children, not just God loving everybody, but us as his children. He's talking about that special affection for those he has called to salvation in his son. This is a a unique way of putting it. In fact, I don't think there's any other place in the New Testament that says it just like this. We are beloved in God the Father, in the sphere of God the Father, not just by him, although that's implied, but in him. I love the way Paul puts it in Galatians 2.20. He speaks about he's crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, uh, he lives, but not him. He said, but Christ lives in me. And he goes on to say, he loved me and gave himself for me. God does, does love us. But I want you to see a very special passage that tells us something of the depth of, of God's love. John chapter 17, our Lord's high priestly Prayer. This is really what we should be calling the Lord's Prayer. This is our Lord's perfect prayer because everything Jesus prayed for was in the will of God. And this is his prayer just before his arrest. John chapter 17. Notice starting in verse 22. He's speaking to the Father. He says, The glory which you have given me I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. Now notice this. And love them even as you have loved me. As incredible as this sounds, what Jesus is saying is God loves the believer as much as he loves Jesus Christ. That's what he said. You love them even as you have loved 
me. Now, God's love for us means that we will never be let go by him. Never be let go so that we can just walk away from him. He'll, he'll never let us go. That love is eternal and makes us secure. How do we know that? Romans chapter 8. I think one of the greatest statements about the security of the believer is found in Romans 8, starting in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He's talking about the love of Christ. Who or what is going to separate us? Nothing, he says. But notice verse 38. He says, For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a great truth. His love is permanent so that you and I don't ever need to fear false teachers deceiving you into abandoning Christ. You will not do that. You, you may have doubts along the way. You may need some counsel. You may need somebody to explain something. But you and I, if we're truly converted, will never walk away from Christ. That love is permanent. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, Jude's third description of believers is that we are kept for Jesus Christ. Some would translate it, and it's, and it's very valid to do this. It may be that we are kept by Jesus Christ or for Jesus Christ. Either way you translate it, essentially it's the same truth. Jude tells us that Jesus Christ will never let us abandon him. He keeps us. He holds on to us. That word keep means that, that we're safe. He watches over us. We're secure in him. In other words, he keeps us in a secure relationship with him. Jesus spoke about this safekeeping in John chapter 10, didn't he? He said, my sheep hear my voice. I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. They're in my hands or in the Father's hands. He keeps us. But I think a precious, precious statement is also in John, John 17, once again, the high priestly prayer. And I remind you, our Lord's prayer and prayers were always in the will of God. So we never question and we never say, well, I don't know if it'll be answered. It will be answered just the way he prayed it. John 17, starting at verse 11. He said, I am no longer in the world, and yet, you remember, this is a prayer to the Father, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. He says, keep them in your name. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. He's not saying Judas had salvation and he lost it. He said that he never had it to begin with. I've kept all of them, but Judas, because he was never one of your own. Now he says in verse 13, now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but notice this, to keep them from the evil one. Not that Satan would never tempt us, but to be kept to the point where, kept away to the point where he can't grab us out of salvation. And now you may wonder, say, well, he was praying for his apostles. It doesn't apply to us. No, it does apply to us because verse 20 says this. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So this is a prayer that applies to all of us. 
Keep them, Father. I kept them while I was here. Now you keep them. We are kept by Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. Now, if these truths about our security are not enough to cause you to say, yes, I'm encouraged. I I don't need to fear ever walking away from Christ. I can't lose my salvation. Notice what Jude does in verse 2, and we'll quickly look at this. He mentions three specific blessings in verse 2 that God continues to give us in order to sustain us in difficult times. This ought to encourage you. This is actually a prayer wish by Jude that we would experience these blessings from God because he wants to multiply them to us. Notice verse 2 says, "May very simple, it says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. It's a, it's a prayer wish, but this is what God wants to multiply to us in our lives. But it all ties in with our eternal salvation. Number one, and this, by the way, is unique to Jude as well. It's one of those triads. He says, mercy. The thought here is, although we face ongoing trials in obeying and honoring Christ, God continues to be kind to us by giving us mercy in the form of strength to obey him for every situation. No matter what temptations come, you've got strength to obey him. That's the point. We know that's the point because this is a just sort of a brief clarification of what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 4:16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive what? Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's talking about temptation because in the previous verses he says we have a high priest who sympathizes with us, tempted in all points like we are. So whatever you're going through, whatever you will go through, You'll be tempted, but you don't need to give in to it because God's mercy is there and is in the form of strength for every situation. Secondly, he says, may mercy, and then he says, and peace be multiplied to you. This is God's peace. This is not peace with God. This is that calmness of heart, that tranquility of heart that we don't have to worry. It's Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, where, where Paul speaks about the peace of God that surpasses all our understanding. Notice what he says. This is just, if you've never memorized this, this is a great, great verse, two verses to memorize. Philippians chapter 4, 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And then he says, when you do this, and he says, the peace of God, this is the result, which surpasses all comprehension. No human being can, can quite understand this but it's valid, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The thought is, is this. When you're bombarded with error and you're bombarded with pressure to defect from Jesus Christ, to give in to the flesh, to do whatever you want to do, you turn to the Lord, you cast your cares upon him, God will flood your, your heart with peace. Circumstances may not change, but your heart will change. Thirdly, Jude speaks of love. He says, may love, may God's love be multiplied to you. What does he mean by this? This is the love of God poured out, shed abroad in our hearts so that we continue to love him. Note this. We love him regardless of the difficulties, regardless of the pressures and regardless of the trials we face. So that you don't ever need to be concerned that tomorrow your love will dry up. It'll just be too hard. Too many pressures, too many trials, and you'll become so bitter that you won't love God. No, Jude says that this love, this love that God 
God puts in our hearts will continue to be there and they'll even be multiplied. As I said, you may have some bumps in the road, but you will have love multiplied. Listen, we do live in dangerous times, just like Jude's readers, in which the truths of God are under constant attack. And don't be naive, even and especially in the church. There are those, and I just close with this for you to consider. Don't close your mind, though. There are those who claim today in the church that there is no such thing as propositional truth. That means objective truth, that you can say, this is right and this is wrong. There are pastors teaching that. That everything is is simply relative. And what they'll say is, well, that's truth for you, but that's not truth necessarily for me. This is, this is new in the history of, of humanity. This is, this is new. This is the postmodern era that we live in. That's, that's precisely what postmodernism is about. And there's no objective truth. And that's being taught in seminaries, some Bible colleges, many churches. There are others in the church who deny the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. That has come under attack by so-called New Testament scholars. Who, who evangelicals tend to embrace and think that this is good because this is scholarship. The inspiration, the authority of the scriptures are being abandoned by those who, interestingly enough, don't just say, they, they don't say we don't believe in the Bible anymore. They say we believe it, but it's just not that important. They ignore it by replacing it in the church with amusement and entertainment. That's the subtlety of it. It'd be actually better because at least you'd know where they stand if they just said, we don't, we don't believe it. But they say they believe it. And they say they're evangelicals. But the Bible really has no place in the church. It's all about entertainment and amusement. And there are many professing believers who tell us that it's really all right to believe in Jesus Christ and still live an immoral and worldly lifestyle. But I'm a Christian. So as believers, we do live in dangerous times. We do live in dangerous times. However, regardless of how bad it gets, and it's only going to get worse, you don't ever need to worry about losing your faith, losing your salvation, regardless of the temptations you face. And we do face them daily to renounce Christ and just live for the desires of the flesh. You don't ever need to worry about that. Jude tells us that we are secure in Jesus Christ because we have been sovereignly called into this relationship with him. We are continuously loved by the Father with a protective fatherly love that will never let go of us. And we are kept by Jesus Christ and we are kept for Jesus Christ so that when he returns, we will stand blameless in his presence with great joy. Let's pray. Father, at the beginning of this study of this precious little book, we pray that it will change our lives for your glory. We pray, Lord, that we might be more discerning than ever. We pray that we might understand that we, there is a time to do battle. There is a time to fight. There is a time to stand up and say, this is the truth. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to grow in our discernment, to not be naive about men we we hear and men we uh, see have uh, written books and are on television and radio and famous. We pray that you'll help us, Lord, to be men and women of the book, of your book. 
We pray that you'll help us, Lord, to enjoy our salvation, to never, as we embark upon our study of this book, never fear that we might be next in defecting from the faith. We pray, Lord, that this will never be, uh, that security would have, we have would never be a license to sin, but we know that the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and wicked behavior. So I pray, Lord, that these truths will change us. I pray you will encourage us by what we've studied tonight to know that you, uh, you love us, you give us peace, you give us so much in Christ, Lord, all the, all the blessings, and you give us mercy to find help and strength in every trial we face. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.